morning, turn to Genesis chapter 20, Genesis chapter 20 this morning, and uh, we're going to try and keep it, we're going to try and use the old, uh, the old KISS method of preaching, all right? Y'all know what the KISS method is? I'm sure you do. All right, yeah, okay, all right, yes, all right, so some of you, I don't know what some of you said, I think you had a different, the last, for me, keep it simple, stupid, that's what I, that's what I've always heard, but I think I heard a different S at the end there, which may have been better than that, but anyways, um, so last week, the last couple weeks, we talked about, we talked about the sacrifice, we looked at Calvary, uh, a preview of Calvary, we looked at the, the, here comes the bride, and as I preached last week, uh, that original sermon was about eight pages of notes, I whittled it down to four, we still didn't get through it. And so then as I was talking to God on the way home and thinking about it, the Lord actually turned that sermon last week, which you, you, you're, you're, you're the blessed ones because that sermon from last week has now become a five-sermon series. So the Lord, I just said, Lord, what about this, this? And every time we looked, we just saw it. So but what I want to do this morning is we're going to a little bit of a long runway for a short sermon. We're going to do a long introduction. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 20. And, uh, and I want to, and I'll just, there's one thought, as I know, the church is getting prepared to uh, hear a new candidate in view of a call to be your permanent senior pastor. We've been praying for you and working for this for over a year now. The church has been praying and laboring, the search committee and all the training and everything we've done. Uh, I'm at the point where I start thinking about the kind of the last words, the last things I'd like to share with us. And one of the things that, that I always like to try and share with the church is, is how we address this matter of sin in the life of a, of a believer but in such a way that we come away more encouraged than discouraged. In other words, I know that a lot of pastors can get up and, and talk about sin in the life of Christians and do it in such a way that when we leave, we feel more guilty and more defeated and more discouraged than when the message started. The reality is you and I are saved by grace. Amen. It's all that Jesus has done. It's nothing in ourselves. But the reality is as much as we're saved by grace, we still live in a sinful world and we still have to deal with our flesh. Amen. But how do we deal with that? What do we do? So I want to look at another picture from the life of Abraham. And we're actually going to go back before the last two sermons. We're going back to Genesis 20. And if uh, I were to give a title to this message, it's not mine. I stole it from another preacher when he preached from this passage. But I like it, so I use it. So if I were to preach and title this message, it would be this. Old natures never die. They just smell that way. Okay? All right? The reality is, beloved... We still have an old nature. But what does that mean for us as a child of God? What does that mean for us on the life of faith and on the journey of faith? Well, let's look at Genesis chapter 20. And we're going to read through the whole thing. And then we're going to let uh, God speak to us this morning. Genesis chapter 20, verse 1. You there? Say amen. The Bible says that Abraham journeyed from thence toward the south country. And he dwelled between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And in verse 2, it says that Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, thou art but a dead man for the woman which thou hast taken, for she is another man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay also a righteous nation? Note what's happening here. All right? Abraham had lied about Sarah being his wife, said he was his sister. The king Abimelech took her to be, saw she was attractive, took her to be his bride. But he hadn't known her, hadn't done anything inappropriate. And God speaks to him once, says, you are but a dead man. You are on dangerous ground. And Abimelech 
is having a conversation. Now, note this. A pagan king is having a conversation with a holy God about righteousness. Because Abimelech says to the king here, will you slay also a righteous nation? Verse 5, said he not unto me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocency of my hands have I done this. And God said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. And God's basically telling Abimelech here, I knew, that, I knew what was going on, and that's why, that's why you haven't touched her. That's why you haven't done anything here. I made sure that that didn't happen. That's why you and I are having this conversation. Now therefore restore the man his wife. I love this. For he is a prophet. I thought he was a liar. Amen? God says, God says, he is a prophet and he shall pray for you and you shall live. And if you restore her not, know that you shall surely die, you and all that are thine. Therefore Abimelech rose early in the morning, and he called all his servants, told those things in their ears, and the men were sore afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said unto him, What have you done unto us? And how have I offended you? And, 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 and you have brought this on me and on my kingdom, a great sin. You have done deeds unto me that ought not to be done. Understand what Abimelech is saying. Now, he's already a lost sinner, but Abraham, a saint, has put this sinner in a position to commit more and even greater sins. Now, that's a legitimate question. Why would you put me in this situation where I would not only do harm to you and your wife, but offend a holy and a righteous God? Verse 10, Abimelech said, I love this. What sawest thou that thou hast done this thing? Let me put that in a modern vernacular. How badly do you think, how bad do you think we are? I mean, just what do you think of me? What made you think that this was the response you needed to take? <clears throat> Verse 11, Abraham said, because I thought, all right, there's the first problem right there, amen? Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place. And they will slay me for my wife's sake. Can I just say to you that, because it's not in my notes, and this just popped into my head, one of the reasons I think that Abraham looked and said, surely I thought the fear of God is not in this place because Abraham himself did not have the proper fear of God. That's why he took the actions that he took. See, when we fear God above men, we can trust God. Amen. And so he says uh, uh, in verse 12, and yet indeed, she is my sister, she is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. I love it. He starts to rationalize it here. Well, you know I lied, but I didn't really lie. I mean, really, it's not, yeah, it is that bad, Abraham. And that's what we do, isn't it? We go to God and we, you know, you know God, I, I know that I probably shouldn't have done this, but I was thinking this and this, and we try to have some sort of a legal argument with God. We try to justify ourselves before a holy and righteous God. And I want you to know, beloved, that, that God doesn't buy any of it. Amen. Doesn't work with him. Verse 13, it came to pass when God... Now, now look at this. Now read this carefully. Verse 13, and it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house. Uh, he is hinting here subtly at the possibility that he's actually blaming God for putting him in this position. 
When God calls me to wander from my father's house, that I said unto her, This is the kindness which you shall show unto me at every place whether we shall come. Say of me, he is my brother. So understand, for over 30 years, Abraham and Sarah had made a covenant to lie if they ever found themselves in this situation. By the way, just so you know, this already happened once before in Genesis chapter 12 when they went into Egypt and they lied and the Egyptian king, the Pharaoh, was going to take her to be his wife and once again God had to step in. And if you go back and read that story, he was a lot harder on the Egyptians than he was on Abimelech and, and, and his people. And I think because at this point God understands that initially where the Egyptians were wrong and Abraham was learning, here at this point Abraham should have known better so he looks differently at Abimelech. We'll come back to that. Verse 14. Abimelech took sheep and oxen and men servants, women servants, gave them unto Abraham and restored him Sarah his wife. He apologized profusely. And the one who was offended, the one who was put in a position of, 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 be, of sinning before God is the one who winds up giving blessings back to Abraham, the saint who started this whole mess in the first place. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before thee. Dwell where it pleases thee. And unto Sarah he said, Behold, I have given thy brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, he is to thee a covering of the eyes unto all that are with thee and with all others. Thus she is reproved. Now, that's difficult reading in the King James, and you may have a modern re ver version of this. And there's a lot of history behind this and a lot of supposition behind this verse. I'm not going to go into all of that, but I'm going to tell you this. Bottom line, what, what you're reading here, when, when he said he is a covering to the eyes, what Abimelech, in the midst of everything that he gave to Abraham, one of the things that he also gave was he gave Sarah a veil to cover her face. Abimelech said, now, now get this, the pagan king, is helping a saint learn how he should be living and acting. And so he gives, he said, if, if you're, you're going to keep telling this lie, here is a veil. Just cover her face so that maybe you won't be in this situation and do this again a third time, even though Abimelech didn't know that this was already the second. Thus she was reproved, verse 17, so Abraham prayed unto God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants, and they bare children, for the Lord had closed up the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So until the saint, Abraham, had his heart made right, the sinners of Abimelech and his nation and his kingdom could not be blessed by God. Get that. Get that. The blessing upon this unbelieving nation, this unbelieving king, this pagan king, and there's nothing in the Bible to indicate that he was a man of faith. He understood something of God. He said he was a righteous nation, and yet he's in the midst of practicing the habit of just taking random women to be his wife. He had a harem, which we know contradicts the word of God. So you have a man trying to tell God that he's righteous based on human terms. You have a saint trying to convince a, a sinner that he's righteous based on God's terms that aren't God's terms, they're actually another sinner's terms. And so through this whole story, you have this picture where everybody's looking in the wrong direction and God has to step in and say, you know, if I don't fix this, they're not going to get it right. That's the world we live in. Amen. Amen. 
God says, I've got to step into this situation where there's confusion between believers and unbelievers, where all this is happening. And right now, and, and, and by the way, this is very different. This is, this is years and years and years ago, and I don't know how this is all going to apply today and, and exactly where we are, but I will tell you right now in America, when you're looking at nations and you're looking at a place like America and you're looking at cities and you're looking at places where they're still telling churches that you can't worship because of a virus, when they're still trying to control the church, you've still got a nation, and if you want to call America a Christian nation, go ahead. I think think she's more pagan than we want to admit and I'm still glad to be an American amen but we're going the wrong direction when we have leaders who are insisting and are convinced that the country would be better off without the church no beloved without the church America falls that much faster amen and so God has to step into this situation so there's three things I want to look at. I actually got to the introduction pretty quickly. The sermon's not that long, so this shouldn't be too bad. Amen. There's three things. Yeah, I love when you laugh. There's three things. Three things I want us to see this morning. Number one, I want us to look at a saint at his worst. Number two, a sinner at his best. And number three, the sovereign God at his absolute highest. And that'll help us frame this this morning. Number one, a sinner at his very worst. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews, when it tells us looking back on his life, that Abraham staggered not at the promises of God. He staggered not. When God made a promise, he staggered not. And yet when I read the Bible, what does it look like? It looks to me like every time I turn around, Abraham is staggering. Amen? Because here's the beauty of it. When you look at any one moment of a believer's life, any one moment of your life and mine, any one moment of a life of a Christian, there's going to be what looks like wavering in that immediate moment. But that's why God never looks at that immediate moment. God looks at the whole life. God looks at the end result. God knows what he has determined for you and me. He knows what Jesus has done. He knows what he's provided. He knows where we're going to spend eternity. And one day we will be with God in heaven. And when we get to heaven, it won't look like we staggered. It'll look like Jesus did everything he needed to do to get us where he wanted us to be. Amen. And so, beloved, there's times when people look at us and they say, man, they, they stagger not at the point. There's people look at us and there's people in this room. Some of you have amazing testimonies. Your faith in God, the way you encourage me when I hear you talk and the way you say things to me and the way I hear you talk about God, it lifts me up and it's encouraging. But here's what I know to be a fact. You struggle as much as I do. Amen. We just don't always get to see that, do we? Amen. See, here you have a sinner at his worst because as he's journeying, and by the way, he's been, he's been given the promise that in his seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Isaac hasn't even been born yet. Sarah's not even pregnant. Abraham should have known. He should have known that nothing was going to happen to him or his wife because God had made that promise. Amen. But for 30 years, they had planned to lie, so when they were put in a situation to trust God, they did what they'd always done. They defaulted back to their flesh. That's the key, beloved. You and I, the longer we live in this world, we need to pray that the Holy Spirit of God would show us those tendencies and practices in our lives that keep us tied to our flesh, making decisions that we don't even realize we're making them or why we're making them. And they're keeping us from showing the world that we're actually walking by faith when it looks like we're walking totally by sight and in fear. And that should never be the case with a child of God. Amen? 
Here's the reality, beloved. You and I still need to learn today and tomorrow and every day after that until Jesus comes back. We need to learn every day not how to trust God. Hopefully we already know that, but how to trust God more. Oh, did you get that? Say amen. See, it's not a question of trusting God. I think everybody in this room would say, I trust God. Abraham said, I trust God. And yet here he is lying, trying to secure his own survival and the survival of his wife in the midst of all the promises of God. It's not about trusting God. It's about trusting him more. He staggered not at the promises of God. Every time you look at him, it looks like he's staggering. And, and one preacher put it this way. In this story, he resorted to carnal means in spite of, in spite of, and you can tell us a preacher came up with this, a previous course, a previous condemnation, a previous correction, and a previous conscience of the same sin. In other words, Abraham had been in this exact position before and the exact same results, and yet here's the second time in his life. Beloved, do you want to know why one preacher said that it's estimated that Jesus repeated himself over 100 times in the life of his ministry? It's because we don't get it the first time. We don't get it the second time. We don't get it the 99th time, and bless God, we don't get it the 100th time. And if God doesn't keep telling us certain things we won't get it amen but aren't you glad that God keeps telling us he keeps showing that he's patient with us that he shows us and he guides us and he and he get and then sometimes when it's so serious and significant he puts us in a situation like this and by the way this is the last time we know that this will ever happen in the life of Abraham hallelujah amen well just as a freebie Isaac and his bride later on are going to be in the same situation and guess what they're going to do going to do the same lie that mom and dad did but that's a sermon for another time some preacher preacher once said it this way it's almost easier to find a man who has never sinned than to find a man who never committed the same sin twice see that which today beloved in our lives is but a cobweb tomorrow becomes a cable the bible says that sin it comes in softly and subtly, and over time, it strengthens its grip on us. And no matter how big or how small that sin is, only God can break that bond in our life. Amen. But why would we want to live in such a way to make it harder for God? to put us in situations like this. Beloved, know this, that if you're a child of God, that if you're a saint, if you are saved by Jesus, they're gonna have, you're going to have days, I'm going to have days when we look just like Abraham. And the world looks at us and says, you don't look like much of a Christian. We need to be honest, and we need to be able to say to them, you know, in this situation, you're right. I really don't look like much of a Christian. But I still am. Amen. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> See, sin demands slavery. Sin demands slavery. I'll give you this as an illustration. Uh, Brother Herb Hodges, who Spiritual Life Ministries, he's gone to be with Jesus now, lived in Memphis for all those years, and he tells a story in one of his messages about a Memphis community. Uh, they'd built a community in Memphis, and all the people in this community were getting sick, and they couldn't figure out why, and they began to do some research, and they found out that someone had doctored and hidden some paperwork, and this community had been built over a toxic landfill. So even though the community looked great, and everything looked fine. Underneath was this deadly toxin that was infecting and infiltrating everything and causing people to be sick. Beloved, we need to make sure that we're not building our lives on a hidden toxic field of the flesh and of our personal sins. Amen. Now, that's the first thing. 
Oh, by the way, I, I thought about this. The, this. Could you imagine this? Could you think about it this way. You know the story of the prodigal son? Remember how he left to, to give me everything, give me a part, and I'm going to go. And he said the father gave him his inheritance. And he let him go into the land. When he spent all his inheritance, he wound up hungry and eating at the, pigs, at the pig trough, eating from the slop of the pigs. Amen? And the Bible says that he came to himself. I love that. He came to himself, and I will return to my father's house because in my father's house, it's better to be a servant. It's as good to be a servant as it is to be a son. So I will return to my father, and perchance he will just let me work for him. It'll be better than eating from the slop. But imagine, imagine if in the midst of all that story, he said, I'm going to go to my father, but before I do, let me get a little bucket of this pig slop. Let me take it back with me. And when I get in my father's house, let me hide it under my bed so that pig slop will be there if I ever decide I want to go back to it. Well, that's absurd. And yet, beloved, too often, that's what sin and that's what our flesh does. There is nothing better than living for and serving and loving and knowing that we are loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Moses in Egypt, Egypt, and the Israelites, when they came out of Egypt, and they were mumbling and complaining, they said, we were better off when we were slaves in Egypt. And Moses' response was, and this is a paraphrase, Moses' response was, really? Really? No, beloved, that's the lie of the devil. So, number two, not just a saint at his worst, but number two, a sinner at his very best. Abimelech in this story looks to be a good man, and isn't the word fil- world filled with good men? Amen. Isn't that what we tell God? But I'm a good man. I'm a righteous man. That's what Abimelech said. He said, will you slay also? Oh, it gets even better than that. Not will you slay also a righteous man. Abimelech said, will you slay also a righteous nation? Uh, will you really, ju- because of his actions, and his, you're going to kill me and a whole nation? Is that what you're Don't you know that we're good people? Well, you know, there's a problem with that. Abimelech didn't know it yet because it hadn't been written. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Amen? Right after that, the Bible says, there is none righteous. No, not one. Amen. Will you slay also a righteous nation? Now, God could have just as easily said, there ain't nothing righteous about you. <laughs> You're not righteous. I define righteousness, not you. But notice, notice Abimelech. Here's what we need to begin. Here's what we need to do in, in, in front of a world that, that, that looks at us and, and either, number one, uses us as hypocrites. They, they use us as an excuse. Say, you guys are just a bunch of hypocrites. I joined the church, but there's too many hypocrites. It's all those hypocrites in the church. And as the old preacher said, well, come on, there's room for one more. Hallelujah, amen. That's why they look at us and they want to blame us and say that we're the problem and they're okay. But the reality is, number one, we should never live that way. So they could say that or have that excuse. But number two, we need to be able to look at them and say, you know, if I've misled you, if I've put you in this situation, that is my fault. But I'm still a child of God. I know where I'm going. And no matter how good you think you are, no matter how righteous you think you are, you still need to know that Jesus died for you. He is your only hope. He is your Savior. You call on him or you have no hope. Amen. See, a sinner at his very best is still a sinner. A lost man at his best is still lost. And we need to look at a world and we need to let them know that that they need to do business with God. Amen? Now, a preacher said, I love this. I I forgot that I I had this. 
The church is the only institution I know of where people join on the basis of how bad they are. Amen. You see, it's what Jesus said. It's not they that are whole that need a physician, but what? They that are sick. Jesus said, I am come to seek and save the lost. Jesus came that sinners could find repentance and grace and faith. And as Billy Graham used to say, you can't get a man saved until you first get him lost. And there's a world of people, a world of people maybe watching online, maybe in churches all across the land this Sunday morning, and they're going to church, or maybe some they haven't gone to church, but they're going to tell you that they're good people. But being good doesn't save anyone. You have to be righteous, and the only way to be made righteous is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'll give you this quickly, and then we'll get to the third point. Number one, never judge a man by his appearance. As I've already said, you and I, we have no idea what's going on in each other's lives. Amen? Never judge a man by his appearance. You don't know. You can look at a man on the outside. He could look to be the best man alive, wear a suit, look, look prosperous. Man, he's, wow, I wish I were him. No, you only say that because you don't know him. Amen. We look at another man. We look at them. They could be disheveled, half-dressed. We, boy, I'm glad I'm not them, but that person might be one of the smartest person. You don't know how they got there. You don't know anything. Never judge a man, number one, by his appearance. Number two, never judge a man by any one moment of his performance. That's a tough one. Amen? Because we all know a man who can live a whole lifetime of good and in a moment, one thing happens, and we throw all the rest out. Now, I want to say to you, beloved, that I think that's wrong. It can be significant, and it can be serious, and it should be dealt with. We make bad decisions, and those decisions are so powerful and overwhelming that they affect the entire future of our life, and they try to wash away the past. But, beloved, the one thing that we must get past in this day and age is we must get past the idea that a man can make a choice that defines him for the rest of his life and locks him into a position where he can't be saved or forgiven. Because Jesus never does that. Amen. We look at people and we say, because you've done this, it wipes out any good that you've done. It, it destroys all hope for your future. No, beloved, until we stand before God, we still have hope. Amen. And we need to show the world. We need to show the world that this is a journey. And on that journey, we ourselves are learning more how to trust God. So you have a sinner at his very best. And live a good life, but if you live the best possible life, or even if you live the worst possible life, it doesn't matter. Until you find faith in Jesus Christ, you never truly have life. You need to come to Jesus. So number one, don't judge a man by his appearance. Number two, don't judge a man by any moment of his performance. And one preacher said, number three, just quit judging. Just quit judging. The Bible says, judge not, lest you be judged. Now, I know the Bible also says, judge righteous judgment, but that's a sermon for another time, and you don't want me to stop here and preach a mid-sermon in the middle of this sermon, so just let it go, amen. When we talk about judgment, beloved, the Bible is clear that the centerpiece by which every life is defined in any area of judgment is the cross of Jesus Christ. So just remember that. And then number three, a saint at his worst, sinner at his best, sovereignty at its highest. 
Look at verse 7. Now therefore restore this man his wife, for he is a prophet, and he shall pray for thee, and you shall live. And if you restore her not, know that you shall surely die, you and all that are thine. God in this one verse both justifies his servant and judges his sin. But here is the power. Here is the thing that we better get a hold of, beloved. You and I need to wrap our minds around this. The one in the greatest fear, the one who should have the greatest fear, the one in the greatest danger in this story is Abimelech. Because of Abraham's choice... Abimelech's life is on the line. So, beloved, I want to say to you that as we live in this world, and and the whole start of the message this morning is what do we do with sin in our lives as believers? How do we live with sin in our life? What do we do with sin in our life? Number one, we try and do everything we can to get it out of our lives, to trust God, not walk in the flesh, to walk in the spirit. But when we walk in the flesh, when we have these moments in our lives, we better trust God to know that he can overcome the worst mistakes that we could ever make. We better know that he is there watching over us. And when somebody looks at us and says, I'm in this position because of you, you're a bad Christian. Say, yes, but I'm still a Christian. I still know where I'm going, and you can still go with me. Amen. Now, our problem is we, the world says, don't you? And we go, yeah, 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 but I'm, don't you mess with me. I'm a child of God. And we think that means we can act any way we want to. Well, but I think that's one of the reasons why the world's in the position it's in today. Because we haven't done a good enough job of showing the world what grace really looks like. And grace doesn't look like permission to commit more sin. Grace looks like forgiveness for the sins that we didn't want to commit and the sins we don't even know we're still committing. Grace looks like forgiveness. Grace looks like a gift. Grace looks like the Son of God nailed to a cross, paying a price that none of us could pay. Not Abraham, not Abimelech, not you, not me, not anybody else. That's sovereignty at work. It takes every person in this world, and we classify it. We say, oh, he's a sinner, but this guy's a real sinner, or he's not too much of a sinner. We take sin, and we stack it up. We make it vertical, but God doesn't do that. God says sin is sin. It's horizontal. It's level. It's equal. One lie is enough to send you to hell as much as one murder. Jesus died for sin, and all sin in God's eyes is enough to sever a relationship with him. That's why we needed a righteous Jesus. That's why the Bible said, he who knew no sin became sin for us, so that we might be made the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. People look at me and say, Brother Ian, you're a good man. No, no, I'm not. I'm a saved man. They look at me and say, oh, you're living a righteous life. I said, if I am, it's only because Christ is my righteousness. It's only because he's made it possible for me to be better than I was yesterday. And he'll make it possible for me to be better tomorrow than I am today. And it'll all be by grace. It'll all be because the sovereign God is doing what I couldn't do. Not only what I couldn't do, but if we're honest, what most of the times we don't want to do. Love that person. I don't want to. Yes, but I've commanded you to. I still don't want to. And then 
the Spirit moves in our life and God says, love that person. And we find ourselves looking at a man, a woman, a child, person of a different color, a different language, a different background, and we find ourselves surprisingly able to love someone we never thought we would love because of a sovereign God has given us the ability to walk in grace and show Christ to a broken world. Amen. It's a sovereignty at its highest. God on the move. There is no heaven that will ever be deserved by any sinner. I'm going to give you this quickly. I've got to wrap up. You, you need to think about it this way. A man drives up to a toll booth. The man at the toll booth says, that'll be $3. The man behind the wheel says, I'm six foot two inches. That'll be $3. Yes, but I'm six foot two inches. I didn't ask you. I don't care. It'll be $3. There's no conversation at that point that will ever cause the man in the toll booth to go, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize you're six foot two. The rules don't apply to you. Go. No, it's going to be $3. Amen? And it's $3 for everybody who goes through that toll booth, whether they're six foot two or five foot one whether they're white or black, whether they're driving a nice car or a not-so-nice car. It's the same for everybody. Amen? Well, beloved, if you want to get into heaven, there's a point you have to go through. And when you get to that point, you don't get past it unless you meet the requirements that God has demanded. And the requirements that God has demanded is that you put your faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. You're going to get to the gates of heaven and you're going to stop and say, the entrance into this place is the blood of Jesus. And you're not going to be able to say that. Oh, but I was a Baptist. Oh, but I was a Methodist. Oh, but I was a pastor. Oh, but I was this or oh, but I was that. Oh, but if you don't know you're covered by the blood, you aren't getting in. It's the price that Jesus paid. In God's eyes, we are always in Christ. So he sees us as he sees Christ. I love it. God has, this is what Hebrews says, God has perfected forever those that are in Christ. I love that. Now, let me see if I can get through this quickly. <laughs> skip that, skip that. <laughs> in the, in an un, now, in an unbeliever, in an unbeliever, sin is and brings its own judgment. See, when an unbeliever sins, it's, it's, it's a rebuke immediately. They're living in sin. And whatever that sin, whatever the consequences of that sin are, brings immediate judgment upon that unbeliever. Sin works that way in the life. But, but in the life of a believer, sin is and brings its own cure. So that when you and I sin... As a Christian, we are confronted with a righteous God. We're confronted with the Jesus we put our faith in. And the Holy Spirit shows us that we need to, now get this, this is an area of our life where we need to trust God more. We need to quit living by the flesh and live by the Spirit. This whole story started by a lie, a 30-year-old predetermined lie, and Abraham had to learn to trust God. On the hill in the land of Mount Moriah, he had to learn to trust God. When he's sending out a servant to search for a bride, he had to trust God until Abraham Abraham drew his last breath. He was learning how to trust God. You will be learning to trust God all the way, beloved. We will be learning to trust him until we walk through the gates of heaven and then we're still going to trust him for the rest of eternity. Amen. Amen. A Christian preacher once said this, as Christians, we should be so, we should be so allergic to sin that if we get anywhere near it, we break out all over. 
We need to recognize those things in our lives that hinder people from coming to the world. We need to realize that, number two, those things are never an excuse. Let me give this to you quickly, beloved. Nobody's ever going to go to hell because of something you or I did. Nobody's ever going to stand before God and say, you know, I would have gotten saved if it wasn't for this person or something you said or something. There are a lot of people in this world, and you might be here this morning, you've been hurt in the church, and the church has hurt a lot of people and been hurt by the, a lot of people have been hurt by the church, but none of that is an excuse for saying no to Jesus. Nobody's going to go to, listen, nobody's going to go to hell because of somebody else's sin. And nobody goes to heaven because they're a good person or because of somebody else's faith. We get to heaven because of our personal faith in the same person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'll give you this quickly. A lost man leaps into sin, and he loves it. A saved man will lapse into sin, and he will loathe it. If you're a child of God and there's sin in your life, it will bother you. Amen. And when the preacher's preaching the Word of God and starts listing things and showing us what sin is, and we don't get it, we start thinking, well, that applies to him, not to him. And it doesn't bother us. You need to be very careful because that's either a sign of, number one, you've never been born again, or number two, you've developed a pattern like Abraham of walking in disobedience for so long you don't even realize you're doing it anymore. A preacher once said, this is what the Bible says, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. That's in the Psalms. Y'all know that, right? Amen? The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. I want to add two things to that. The stops of a good man are orchestrated by the Lord. And the stumblings of a good man are overcome by the Lord. Amen. Beloved, you and I, as we go through this world, as the child of God, as the children of God, we're going to make mistakes. The sins of saints are no excuse for a lost man. And the sovereignty of God two things and we're done, I promise. The sins of the saints are no excuse for a lost man. If you're an unbeliever, you don't believe in God, you're struggling with this, you don't, you can't, you're not going to be able to blame anybody. The sins of the saints are no excuse for anybody. Number two, the sovereignty of God is no excuse for the saved man. Once saved, always saved. That's what we say as Baptists, right? That's a dangerous and deadly statement. I don't care how true it may be. Because we've gotten the idea that, well, if Jesus saved me, I can just live any way I want to, and I'll just trust God, and in the end, it'll all work out. No, it won't. Ask Abraham. Amen? And the reality is, beloved, get this. If we don't pursue righteousness, how do I deal with sin in my life? I want to get it out as much as possible, out of my life, so that it doesn't control me. I want to be led by the Spirit. Why? Because the decisions I make, the decisions I make, are not affecting my eternity, but they could very well be affecting somebody else's. And as a child of God, I don't ever want to be the reason that anybody even has an opportunity to point to me and say, you know, if it wasn't for him. And when I get to heaven, I would rather people say, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be here. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't know the Lord. Rather than if it wasn't for him, I would have continued in my sin or I, would have, I wouldn't have continued in my sin. No, beloved, we need to live in such a way we draw people to Christ, not push them away from him. So when God is at work in the conviction of a person, in true conviction, excuses disappear, though there may be plenty of material available from the saints. The biggest puzzle, the biggest puzzle in this world to a spiritual man is the moral man who doesn't know God. 
but he's also an absolute embarrassment to a carnal Christian. What do I mean by that? When you and I are walking in the flesh and we have a man who's actually living a life that looks like they're living better and more righteous than we are, that ought to drive us to our knees before God. Amen. We can't act the way the world acts with the riots and the anger and the violence. We are to be driven by the Holy Spirit of God. We are to show the world that our faith is in Christ alone, that we're living by the Word of God and those principles. And when there's sin in my life, I ought to acknowledge it, confess it before God. And when anybody points out sin in my life and in your life, just admit it. You're right. You know what? I messed up. That's wrong. You're absolutely right. Don't do like Abraham. Well, you know, she's really my half-sister. And Really, if God hadn't started this whole thing. No, just stop and say, yeah, you're right. I didn't do right in this moment. I didn't trust the Lord. We need to admit when we talk to God in our quiet time, as well as when we live and the world sees it, we need to let people know that we are stumbling and struggling through this journey. But our end is settled because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. And anybody else is welcome to join us on that journey. Amen. And here's the beauty of it. There are going to be people who are going to join us on that journey. Guess what? They're going to stumble more than us. They're going to people who are going to join us on that journey. They're going to stumble less than us. But we're all going to stumble. Amen. Now, is that more encouraging this morning? Is that a little bit? I want you, oh, you mean I'm going to make mistakes? Yeah, as if you and I didn't already know that. Amen. But you mean God is with me even while I'm making those mistakes? Yes. You mean there's still forgiveness after I've made those mistakes? Yes. You mean I can grow and learn from those mistakes and be a better Christian? Yes. 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 Now don't run out and sin so you can learn something new. That's not how it works. Amen. But when you do, just know that you are just as loved by God as you've always been. And if you're here this morning or you're watching online and you still don't understand what the church is all about. It's about the kind of grace and forgiveness that can only be provided through a sacrifice like the one Jesus made 2,000 years ago that leveled the playing field between young, old, black, white, Jew, Gentile, anyone who ever has lived, is living, or ever will live. They're all balanced and met by a grace and a love and a forgiveness in the person of Jesus Christ that extends to all of mankind. Amen. Now let's bow our heads in prayer this morning.